Hello, and welcome to episode 83 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com. And with me again this week are two guests, technically one co-host. The co-host is Carl Bialik from the 30 Love podcast. And our guest is Jeff McFarland from Hidden Game of Tennis. So guys, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, lots of exciting stuff to get into this week. And rather than focusing as much on exactly what's happening this week and having something that's going to be obsolete in four days time, uh, there's a couple big topics that I want to dive into today. And the one I want to start with is something that you hear a lot of coaches talking about. Um, one notable coach in particular is Craig O'Shaughnessy, someone whose name has come up on this podcast several times in the past, someone who works with Novak Djokovic and Matteo Berrettini these days and has also worked with other people such as Dustin Brown in the past. Um, and Craig has said in a variety of ways, on a variety of platforms over the years, that the practice court is broken. And to defend that argument, he will bring out some rally length data and, and point out that these days rallies are very short. A high percentage of points are won or lost on the serve or beyond that one or lost on the second shot, like the, the serve plus one or the return plus one. And just to clarify before we start talking about some of the details here, um, serve plus one, that's the, the guy who hits the serve or the girl who hits the serve, um, the server's second shot. So, I mean, if you, if you, if your second shot's a winner, that's a serve plus one winner. If, if the returner's second shot is a winner, that's a return plus one winner. Um, so that's a three shot rally or a four shot rally respectively. And what Craig has found and, you know, anyone who digs into the data will find is that those, po those point lengths are extremely common. I mean, especially some of the big hitting women like Arena Sabalenka, they can go games and games at a stretch with points that are return winners, serve plus one winners, serve plus one errors, just two shot rally, three shot rally, four shot rally, three shot rally. And you never get into the sort of Gilles Simone, Bjorn Borg style grinding at the baseline. Of course, there are players who do that on both the men's and women's tours, but not so many. And maybe things are changing in the direction of shorter points. Uh, some, some coaches certainly believe so. Um, but what I want to dig into is we have to accept some of this as true, that points are short players should be prepared for short points. But I am skeptical of this notion that the practice court is thus broken. So Carl, I, I want to start with you to, to, to get the discussion rolling here. First thing that comes to mind is, is a tennis court being broken and having cracks on it, and you should probably find a better court if you can. And if you can't, then inequality plagues tennis like it does everything else. But this, this use of the word broken has become trendy recently just to mean could be improved from where it is now. So, so let's start by just accepting that's really what people are saying, is that it's suboptimal, like probably everything. So is, is practice suboptimal, and is it suboptimal by not focusing enough on the first two shots is probably the less catchy way to present the premise that we're going to address. I mean, if, if we say suboptimal instead of broken, no one's going to listen to this podcast. Well, I took my headphones off when you said that. <laughs> even, even the guest isn't listening. Um, it is the worst thing in the world. Okay, that's my attempt to, to re-clickbait it. Go ahead. Okay, going straight, going straight into the headline, podcast <laughs> episode 83, the practice court is the worst thing in the world. But okay, <laughs> point taken, good point. It's suboptimal. So, so if we're rephrasing the question in a more responsible in accurate manner. Um, Carl, let me let me volley the question that I was aiming for in the first place. Like, do you buy this, that the, the practice court is suboptimal? I absolutely buy that suboptimal. I have no idea whether this is the way to make it better. And I don't think anyone else does, but I'd love to see enough people try it in a way where we can measure it so we find out. I, I think the first thing I would want to know maybe I'll, I'll put this question to hidden game of tennis, Jeff is do we, do we even have like a really solid intuition about what the current state of affairs is? Like, is anybody tracking, has anybody logged practices at various levels to say, this is the percentage of time we're focusing on each of these parts of, of the game so that we even know what the starting point is that we're trying to improve. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I was thinking the same thing because uh, all of us have been at tournaments where you watch the practices there, and I, I've got to believe that's not what we're talking about. Those are more like warm-ups. Um, I mean, maybe Cole Shriver decides he wants to hit more cross-court backhands during that particular practice because he felt like he didn't hit it very well in the prior one. But that's not where improvements are being made. Those are being made in the either in the off-season or in the long stretches between tournaments for the everyone but Benoit Paire. And uh, so, no, I don't think we have any idea um, about what they're actually practicing. I think we have some anecdotal uh, information about some of the, the top players. I, I mean, we've seen over the years Nadal's serve evolve. We've seen Djokovic's serve evolve. We may have seen it evolve just this week. Uh, and, and so, you know, they're working on things, but I don't, I don't know how much... You know, what we would work on and what a professional would work on are, are two different things. Um, so I'm not, I'm not clear about what it is that, I don't know if we even know, what, like you said, where to start if there is something to fix. Yeah, that's a good point. That it, I mean, what, what both of you are saying, I think, is, A, we don't know what we're starting from. I mean, if the practice court is broken, you're making some assertion about what the practice court is right now. And it varies a lot from player to player. I mean, I'm not sure if this is the point you were trying to make, Jeff, but I mean, you can look at some players and say they're spending a lot of time developing their serve, they're spending a lot of time developing their backhand, whatever. I've watched practices that weren't specifically just warms up, warm ups for matches where, for instance, Mario Ancic spent 30 minutes just returning Lubicic's serve. And Lubitsch was standing a foot or two inside the baseline. So, I mean, I remember the, the guy I was there with said, man, this is a, a brutal practice because it's hard. I mean, it's hard enough to return Ivan Lubitsch's serve, let alone, you know, do it when he's standing that far inside the baseline and do it over and over and over again for half an hour. I've watched um, young women players just practice approach shots, approach shot forehands for 10 minutes at a time. So that seems to be the kind of thing that, that coaches like Craig are are talking about that that's what they want to see and to me it feels like I already have seen it and I think we need to approach this question from what what you guys have already pointed out is a state of extreme ignorance we don't know maybe nobody knows exactly what the the status quo is for what practices look like so if we talk about changing it then you know we're we don't even know what we're changing. But one way we can frame this question in a way that I think is more amenable to the sort of analysis that, that the three of us do is what can be improved. So if, you, if you're a professional, let's say you're a top 100 player, um, you're pretty good at everything. You've been practicing presumably everything for at least 10 years of your life. Um, you're you're improving partly in response to what your peers are partly you're you're trying to maintain your skills um jeff do you think there are particular areas where where the players we see in the top 100 now could improve more where more practice time theoretically could pay off i think it's more obvious on the women's side um and and this may be because um some of the up-and-coming women, maybe most of them, still have a relatively weak second serve. So uh, that, that there's two things associated with that. One is the serve itself is not very good uh, and needs work. Uh, and the other is that uh, because of equipment, better returning, uh, you know, everything that goes into making returners better than they ever have been, uh, they have to be ready uh, instantaneously after hitting the a weak serve, sometimes even after hitting a good first serve, uh, the ball is right back at their feet. And so, you know, some of the, the players that uh, I think have a lot of potential, like um, Alexandrova or, or Kudermetova, people like that, sometimes are not ready for that, uh, that plus one shot. I mean, they don't, have, they don't ever get to the server plus one. It's just serve return. And then they get surprised a little bit when the ball comes back. So, uh, you know, I think uh, some focus on second serves, but also just being immediately ready for the next shot after your serve. And I, and I think it's because some of these, and um, uh, here I'm talking about the women, their serves are so much better than uh, their peers all the way coming up. And in some cases, Alexandrova and Kudermetova are two good examples, really better than the people on the tour right now. Uh, they, they don't really expect the ball to come back as much. They've had, a, you know, I say a lifetime. They're all like 22 years old. 
but they've had a lifetime of tennis in, in which uh, they win those points. Those are free points, and uh, they're not free points anymore. And uh, so, yeah, I, th- I think that that's something in particular, if you're looking for something specific, that, that a lot of the, uh, the younger and up-and-coming up women could focus on. That's an, that's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. And I think that what you're describing is something that O'Shaughnessy would endorse. Because it, uh, this might be slightly out of date information, but you hear about kids at academies, you know, hitting a thousand serves before breakfast or something like I, I don't think there's ever been a complaint that up and coming players don't practice the serve enough. <laughs> but you're talking about something different, right? I mean, it's not, it's not the serve. It's it, it's preparation after that yeah and it's hard i mean you know i know you guys go out on the court but that's a hard thing to get used to i mean you hit a serve and you kind of you know we we tend to watch it a little bit more i don't think that they watch their serves but i i just think that the things are coming back at such a pace that there there has to be a technique for that um and the men certainly have that technique because they're serving harder which means you know they have less time uh between the next shot uh but also the ball's coming back harder and they've been able to adapt. So there, I just think that adaptation maybe hasn't been made on the WTA yet. And it, and it may be because we are seeing some of the, probably some of the best serving that we've ever seen as a group among the top 100 on the WTA, at least at least in terms of first serves. Uh, and also returning. I, I mean, I, I watched uh, Alexandrova play uh, Muguruza the other day and uh, just bludgeoning Muguruza serve. I mean, I don't know how many return winners she had or or forced errors, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was half. Yeah. And and this feels like a maybe one of part of a category of ideas that we could probably come up with and listeners could come up with that then I would love to find a way to test. And, you know, first I'd want to test this just by the descriptive stats, like do um do women you know have a really high rate of forced errors on their third shot um i I think the the premise is also the ball's coming back deep so maybe we'd be looking at deep returns we have to figure out exactly how it would look in match charting data like like the data that uh tennis abstract jeff and his his team of match charters have collected over the years and maybe if we could also get Hawkeye stats. And then I think the second part of the testing would be, is this, does this look like something that drops off a lot or improves a lot? So, I mean, if the premise is that players didn't have this problem coming into uh, tour level, if we could get data from before tour level, could we see that this is something that drops off a lot? And then does it seem to improve? Do players get used to it and get better at it? And is that a process that we could even hasten and help a player along early in the career if they're practicing this more. Uh, I mean, match play is a kind of practice too. So you, you do get the practice, but you get it in a difficult way by losing matches, presumably. So, um, you know, is this is there evidence that this is more changeable than, I don't know, ace rate or something? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And I think you could even make the same sort of argument about ace rate. I mean, ace rate's a lot easier to study. The data has been collected for a long time and we have it for all matches, not just charted matches. But sticking with this example of like third shot forced errors, for example, what we're talking about is how much have we seen some players improve? I mean, if, if we're going to ask, you know, how much could Ekaterina Alexandrova improve on X skill or Y skill or Z skill, I think you'd want to know who's who's managed to improve like that before and that's i mean while we're listing studies that await being done by someone maybe one of us uh, my biggest question is what have players improved at the most and presumably some people are practicing correctly i mean even if you completely buy into the the most pessimistic version of, of craig's approach that the practice court is broken Surely Craig would agree that some people's practice courts are not entirely broken, that some people are practicing serve the right way or return the right way or handling the return the right way. And if we if we were able to identify the players who improved the most, then not only would we know that it was possible to improve some of these skills, but then maybe those are the coaches you'd want. I mean, if you if you knew that, you know, 
a young Simona Halep really de- developed her skill doing this or that, and you had the same kind of um, gap in your game, then you might want to look at what she was doing, who she was working with, and so on. So, Jeff, where do you come down on that? I don't know whether we'll ever have the junior data to compare what they did before to what we have on the tour. I, I do think we probably, in some, uh, it would be a rather sophisticated study, uh, might be able to figure out who has improved or what areas have been improved by players over time. But I do think that maybe as a beginning step to that, even if you didn't have the analytical data, there's some value in saying that we may, or at least suggesting that we may be in a rut in terms of practicing. And going back to what I was talking about before, do you, in that scenario in which your second serve is getting killed and therefore you don't have time to react and hit the third shot, do you work on the second serve or do you work on the third shot? Um, do you say, well, my second serve isn't going to get that much better because I've, I've been hitting it this way for 15 years and it's just not improving. Maybe I focus on the third shot or... Uh, is the, you know it's easier for a coach to say, well, we really got to work on that second serve, uh, at least you know in terms of um, maybe the, the way practice has been conducted historically. Uh, so everything is a everything is a choice, and I, I'm assuming that you can't practice all things and get better at all of them, and so you have to make some choices, and that comes back to Carl's point that it'd be nice to know which ones would we be wasting our time on? Do people ever really get that much better on their second serve once they hit tour level? And if, if, if they don't, then let's focus on that, uh, how to prepare. You know, somebody must have talked to Sarah Arani about that at some point, right? <laughs> and that's no how she ended up with an underarm serve. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think anybody's still working on Arani's second serve. God, let's hope not. <laughs> if, if we do, that person needs to be like, banned from coaching. But yeah, that, so that's that's one of the key questions here is some of these skills they it seems like they max out i mean i think we talked a little bit about this last week that there's i think you can make an argument that everyone on the tour is improving all the time a little bit so i mean it isn't it isn't that everyone's staying the same and some players manage to improve their game. It's that everyone is improving and some players manage to improve even faster, especially young players who are on the rise. But beyond that, beyond maybe you know being a little tactically smarter on your serve or something or placing a little, a little better, the question is how much can you improve? And we always point to someone like Rafael Nadal as someone who can boost the effectiveness of their serve. But the fact that we talk about Nadal so much suggests to me that there aren't that many other examples to talk about. So that that's one of the core questions. And I'm not sure I have a good intuition about that. And Carl, if you're if you're watching a, a typical men's match, do you see them serving and think, you know, I think if these guys put more time into their serve, they could be serving better than they are right now? Every once in a while I think it because and a commentator just said it like I've heard over the years, people criticizing the height or placement of ball toss, for instance, I think that more often the criticism is about how to deploy a serve. I think we've been talking so far more about skill and instinct and, you know, practicing the same repeated um, tasks so that you, you get better at it and, and, and faster at, at making decisions. But with the serve and to a lesser extent with later shots, there's also the decision about how to deploy that skill. And I, I could imagine a focus on the first four shots or even the first two shots that might be more about um, what, what choices you make and then also being comfortable with what happens from those choices. So for instance, when Medvedev uh, went more aggressive on a second serve against Djokovic last year in a, in a big match, and it turned the match around, or at least that's the narrative around that match. To what extent was Medvedev comfortable, you know, taking that risk, hitting more double faults because he tried it out? Is is practicing, you know, doing something different than you're used to and then dealing with the repercussions as useful or more than, you know, practicing a ball toss a hundred times? Yeah, that so. There's a you're kind of you're referring to two different things. I think one is that there's a tactical aspect to all this. I mean, you, it might not be so much hitting an extra mile an hour on your serve, but placing it more intelligently or making making these trade offs more intelligently, but also a psychological 
thing to discuss here that and that's that's not the practice court at all it's practice time or preparation time but you need to you need to recognize that what you're doing has risks and that's going to give you different results than what you did before uh, Jeff you wanted to jump in I, well I, I, I yeah I mean I, I agree with all of that uh, obviously I, I I do think that you see players that you think have improved in one way or another, uh, and you know some of those some of those are more obvious. I think the reason we have fewer examples is because we really don't focus on that analysis with respect to players who aren't at the very top. So uh, it may be that we think that Novak's serve has improved and that Rafa's serve has improved, and we don't have a lot of other examples because we're so focused on those two guys and Federer who seemingly has nothing to improve unless he can turn back the clock. Uh, but I don't know that we necessarily look for those same things or have the same uh, repetitive instances of watching matches of players who are ranked 50th and saying, oh, that's really improved. I mean, you, you tend to recognize it when someone who was 50 last year is in the top 10 and you think, boy, yeah, that second serve is a lot better. But um, but I don't know that we systematically, or at least I don't, uh, watch matches to see who's improved because I don't have enough repetition for the same players over and over who aren't who aren't top players. I mean, I like to watch uh, certain players, but if you were asking me, I don't know whether um, whether Taylor Townsend's volley is better than it was last year. I, I just don't know, uh, and I, I suspect that all but a few select fans do. Uh, and and with your question with Carl, I I do see things that. You always think, uh, you know, from your from your armchair and what you know about maybe what your tennis coach has told you in a lesson at some point. You're like, why? Why is that toss so high? Or why is it? Uh, why isn't it higher? Uh, but I, I think some of these are, are things that are, are really hard habits for these players to break because there's so much repetition in their uh, training up to this point that I do think there are are, are limits on what kinds of changes you can make. And, and that, I think, supports Carl's idea that maybe you should be thinking about it more strategically rather than technically because those technical things are, are going to be... like I would, We would all have loved to see Golbus with a different forehand take back. Um, or you might even say that about uh, Tiafo, um, who's a lot younger and presumably has more chance to change. But I just don't think you're going to change that forehand. Uh, in, in the stroke production, I think you're, you're just going to have to figure out the best way to use it, know what its weaknesses are, learn to prepare a little earlier, for example, might be a, a better approach than to try to say, well, don't take the racket back so far or don't do yeah. whatever that thing is he does with his wrist right before he hits it. Um, you know it's not a good thing if that's how you have to describe it. It's like <laughs> that weird thing he does. <laughs> I don't even, I don't know what it is, but when it's working, it just seems like, wow, that is a unique and really cool shot. And then when it's not working, you think, how did someone let him hit that forehand in that way for so long? So one thing we keep coming back to here is that, that the players we're talking about have been at this for a really long time. I mean, not only have they been at it for a decade or more in some cases, but they've been working hard at it. So whatever the total number of tennis practice hours in our lives, the three of the three of us on this podcast combined, it's definitely less than you know your typical 19-year-old tennis player who's been practicing hard for a decade. Uh, so if you're talking about a, a forehand with a hitch in it or a second serve that just can't be that good without sacrificing accuracy. Maybe these are things you can't change. So bringing it back around to what, what Carl was hinting at, that we could be talking about more tactical things. So I just want to start with a, start that with a broad question and start with you, Carl. Do you think, just, just talking about serve, serve direction, serve speed, serve trade-offs, just the serve, do you think that players could be tactically smarter in how they deploy the serves they have? Yes, definitely. But could they, is it easy to find out how? And, <laughs> uh, you know, like, is there an answer that, that their coach could hand them right now uh, with the available information that, that I'm, that I doubt, but I think, I think there's a path to it for players who, who want to find it and want to try things out. One one analogy that popped into my head here is is between serves or maybe even a step beyond a serve, but definitely serves and chess openings. And 
we've talked, I think we mentioned this last week and definitely before on the podcast, Caroline Wozniacki's um, weird and persistent trend in serving the same direction for the first four points of every service game, even though her opponents almost definitely know where she's going. And if you're a chess player, if if you're a good chess player anyway, you've memorized a lot of openings, a lot of responses to openings. You don't really think about that anymore. I mean, you, you might decide, you know, which which openings would be most effective against certain players, but you don't think about how to do them because you memorized them when you were, you know, 8 years old and they haven't changed since then. I mean, do you think Carl that that more players would be better off like setting aside what direction we're talking about or what speed we're we're talking about, is there a benefit to just deciding this is my serve strategy and not having to think about it in the in the moment? I don't know. I mean, you don't toss the chess piece up. <laughs> like I think the serve that a player generates has something to do with the conditions, what the player's seeing about their opponent, and their position on the court. Uh, which is something that Hidden Game Tennis Jeff has been studying recently. It has to do with um, the sun and the wind and the balls and the court. And I, I, I guess that would make sense to me that some players would have a mentality that would really benefit from just taking that off the table and not having to think about it. But these are players who have played hundreds of matches in which they decided you know, seconds before each serve what they were going to do and sometimes adjusted based on the toss they threw uh, and what they saw in the air when they when they went up to hit it. So it, it seems like that would be a, a pretty big, big shift for a lot of them. That's fair. Yeah. And, and, and Jeff, since, since Carl mentioned your work on, on return position, let's, let's shift to that. Like you, you've been looking at how far players are standing back and whether some players are shifting their tactics over time. I mean, when, we're, when we're looking at how f- a player's return position, how much of that do you think is sort of a macro level decision that maybe players are talking about with their coaches before the match or even before the season? And... Uh, how much of that is just in the moment, like reacting to what just happened on the last point or how the opponent is serving that day? Well, I'm guessing at this point, it's more point by point and player reaction than it is uh, coaches saying, hey, you know, Nadal drifts back every time in the second set, so maybe take a little something off and and, and bring him in. Uh, yeah, it's funny because um, I was, one of the things... I might be the only person who's using the word excitement in ATP Cup before ATP Cup started. Uh, but I was kind of excited about what was going to happen with the second screen data. Uh, they had a screen over there that was showing the behind-the-scenes stuff, and coaches could look at it, and they can confer with players. And I guess if players wanted to, they could look at it themselves. And uh, I rarely even saw the screen like on. Uh, and I, I don't know how many matches I watched at ATP Cup, but I saw very... I don't think I saw one instance of a single human being in the team box look at the second screen data. Jeff, I, I, I had this in mind when I watched some matches this week. We mentioned this on last week's podcast as well. And in general, my experience uh, matched yours. But one big um, counterexample was my doubles hero, the South African player, Captain Robin Clausen. And during, I think it was Lloyd Harris's match against Gilles Simone, Clausen looked very intent studying the screen. Hmm. I couldn't really tell what he was studying because of the camera angle, but there's one data point, (laughs) one data point that a a coach was actually studying this for some insights. I think it'll be more common going forward. Um, You see this in every sport when uh, this sort of data revolution happens. It takes a while to to break through. If if you think about uh, for, uh, you know, Americans or other fans of baseball, uh, how long it took to convince front offices to use the data and not rely on the 70-year-old cigar-chewing guy who sat behind home plate and had a stopwatch. Uh, and, and blending those two, I don't think, uh, I think that's sometimes misunderstood that the human element was replaced by the data. But I think the same thing is going to be true. You've got insiders in tennis who are mostly the coaches, and they came up a certain way, and they have experience, and they don't want, you know, they don't want anything that... As, as an ego matter, I think, to start with, anything that undermines that expertise that they've built through doing the hard yards. Um, but there will always be um, some progression in that in that regard. And, and Clawson, that's, that's a really interesting example. I like that. Uh, I was hoping there would be more of it so that we could see maybe what coaches were thinking about, but maybe we did learn that. Maybe we learned they're not, they're not thinking about the data really at all unless they've hired, you know, a Shaughnessy as a consultant. 
Uh, and so uh, I, I think, I just go back to your original question, I think it's still a, a point by point or a, maybe it's a game by game or segment by segment uh, a decision by the players themselves about whether to change tactics based on what they're seeing on the other side. And then the, the other thing I would say is that I think there's a lot of falling back on what you're comfortable with is that it's all well and good to say, oh, I'd really like to take 10 miles an hour off the serve and hit a wide serve and pull them out. But if that's not really something that you've, this goes back to practice, if you haven't spent a lot of time on that, or maybe you're just never really good at it, um, you, you tend to fall back in a, a tight moment, a high leverage moment on what you're most comfortable with. Um, and maybe, you know, with Isner or something, it's a down the tee. I, I haven't researched that, so I'm not saying that. But you, you have the place that you want to go because you know it works and and, and it's the most comfortable um, because they're still human beings making those decisions in tight moments and uh and so it's a, it's it, it's it's a little bit tough but I, I agree with your assessment though that maybe just prepping the players and having a fallback default plan that is look if you don't otherwise you know have an analysis or aren't thinking too tired whatever it is i want you to do this you know go wide or or whatever rather than fall back on whatever you've been doing for the last 15 years and so so this is interesting i think both you jeff and carl have have said things that i i hope i'm not misrepresenting them but you're by saying that players have are used to making these decisions in the moment i mean carl said that that servers are, are accustomed to making those decisions in the few seconds for the serve jeff you're saying that that returners are are reacting on a point-by-point -point basis and making adjustments and and that final point that players will will fall into patterns of what they're most comfortable with i mean which makes sense in in the high pressure moments uh, i wonder if I've, I've offered sort of a false dichotomy between the 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 technical skills that players have developed developed from a decade over the decade of practice and also tactics as if there's something different um, and I, I've always thought of them as something different. Clearly, like Tiafo's wonky forehand is different than Tiafo's decision of whether to hit it down the line or, or cross court. But maybe it's not that different. I mean, may, maybe maybe part of Tiafo's backswing is thinking, where could I go with this shot, or, or where where do my feet have me? What options do they give me? So I, I keep coming back to this question, not just not just today, but for, for years of thinking about this stuff. Of if you're a coach and you want to give tactical advice to your players, what do you give them? I mean, where, where do you even start? And, and Jeff, you just offered one suggestion to that dilemma, which is you don't treat it as an opportunity to reshape someone's entire game. You say, if in those cases where you don't already know what to do, here are some suggestions. But Carl, can, can we take that any further? I mean, if we're, if we're talking about optimizing how players manage their first four shots, what could you tell your average ATP or WTA tour player that either they don't already know or isn't already baked into sort of automatic trained movements as part of their game? You know, one thing I suggested last week that I think would apply here with enough data is to be able to say, this is where you're really far off the norm. I mean, if, if you're hitting if you're you know winning a certain percentage of second serve points that's pretty much in line with tour average and in line with your career average then there's there might not be that much room to to move that but with enough um enough match data you might be able to really point to how you're handling the short slice backhand return to your backhand what you're doing on the third shot off of that shot and why that seems to be a big opportunity for improvement because right now you suck at it. Um, you know, you have to make sure you're not data mining and just looking at enough possibilities that of course you're going to find something that is, is far off the average because it's just by chance that it is. Uh, so I think that's one potential area for improvement. You know, I think that if you combine that with the intuition that players will already have of what feels off and, and what their coaches feel off, I mean, I, I think there probably is going to be a lot of improvement just from the intelligence of the people involved of like what, what seems um, like something that's just not 
not working well or, or put another way, something that you really hope your opponent doesn't find out and doesn't exploit. Um, but, you know, I, I think that to, to get that information, players also ought to be trying different things in matches, which means, as, as you both have pointed out, probably playing more practice matches to really get the experience of what it's like to deal with a, a return right at your feet. It's not just to, to experience that, but to experience it when it's 15, 30, 4, 5, even if it's in a practice set where there's nothing really at stake. So I think that's another way to get sort of more information about um, what is what is not working right now for a player relative to the rest of their ability. I think that men have a particular problem maybe in, in practice in that um, if they practice with each other, uh, they can get a sort of a real simulation, but I'm not sure how much of your tactics you want to give away in a, you know, a tournament practice when you could face that uh, opponent. Um, but I was just thinking like, you know, if, if I don't know if uh, Berrettini wanted to practice his, his first shot after his serve, he's got to be hitting with it. I mean, and their coaches are very good tennis player. I mean, relative to you and me, they're, great tennis players, but relative to the people that Berrettini is going to be facing, they're not. Uh, and so how does he hit a serve and then get a return back that simulates uh, what he's going to be facing? Even if you could simulate the speed, for example, you can't simulate the Rafa spin. It's a hard thing to, to, to set up for. You can say generally, let's focus on getting your feet organized and so forth. But uh, actually getting a, a simulation of that in practice and doing it a hundred times is a a lot more difficult. I, I you know, I, I think a lot of players have coaches who hit the ball back to them and then they hit the ball and they think, wow, I did a really good job on that. I really, you know, I really crushed that plus one. Well, yeah, but that's because your 40 year old coach who, you know, was number 800 on the tour hit it back to you. Let's see if you can do that when Federer hits it back to you. Well, maybe that argues too for the trend of relatively recently retired players who were not who peaked well above 800 and are below 40 and, and more recently on tour. Maybe they can't keep up with you in a whole match, but can still simulate pro level returns. Yeah. And I think it's a little easier for women because they are still are primarily coached by, by men at this point and, uh, and, and who are going to hit the ball harder back to them on return. So it's, it's maybe a little easier, easier to prep in the, in a, this particular scenario that I'm talking about with practicing the plus one, uh, but uh, yeah, I could see it being real difficult for, for Cole Schreiber to figure out how he's gonna, you know, get to his next, get to his next shot when the person he's hitting with is is not capable of hitting it the way his next opponent is going to. Is the answer there something that might be obvious to coaches? I don't know what exactly um, coaches do to develop this skill, but is the answer there is to have your player hit a serve and then hit a different ball back as the return. I mean, you don't have to return the same ball to make it valid practice. Just you know, stand a couple feet inside the baseline, uh, watch the serve go by, and then and then crush a return back at the guy's feet. Would would that serve the same purpose? Well, they do that. I think we've we've heard about people doing that uh, practicing against uh, Isner, where the coach serves at the service line, stands at the service <laughs> line, and and hits serves to simulate primarily. I I don't think it's as much about speed because there are other people who hit the ball as hard as him but to practice the height of the bounce that's coming from the trajectory that he's you know at 610 611 whatever he says he is this year uh what that that bounce coming up is uh because that that thing hits and it's it's a rocket and i don't think you're going to get a simulation of that so i think that's what you're talking about and i do think there probably is a a way to do that i don't know it's kind of a tricky thing but yeah, it's something that certainly could be, certainly be could be considered. So let, let's shift gears a little bit here. And one of the th something else that I think Craig O'Shaughnessy talks about a lot is the. Uh, I mean, it, as I've already mentioned that he talks about average rally length. There's a there's so many serve plus one return plus one points, and maybe he makes this clear in something that I haven't heard or read of his. But I'm. I'm never clear how much of this is descriptive and how much of this is prescriptive. I mean, if it's just descriptive, then you can't really dispute that. There's a ton of points that end that quickly. There's there's a lot of players, especially up and coming women, who who try to end it that quickly by just swinging big on their on their serve plus one shot and often their return or return plus one shot. But 
On, on the men's side, you see more players who are, are willing to set up points. I mean, certainly someone like Daniel Medvedev, if he's setting the tone for the next generation of, of male players, we can look forward to some more 30-shot rallies. But the O'Shaughnessy of the, of the world point out how few of those long rallies they are. So is, is there a case for the prescriptive arguments that more players, and let, let's talk about men here, that more players should be more aggressive, um, maybe like like Berrettini, who's had a ton of success in the last year climbing into the top 10. And Carl, do you think that more players should be looking to replicate that game style and, and try, to, try to use their shots differently to end points faster? Probably. I, I think that to, to figure out who they are, we'd at minimum need to start by separating serve and return stats and then serve and return tactics and how aggressive you can be on return on, on either shot uh, depends on how good that shot is. But, you know, for, for Berrettini, let's say it seems to work for him on a serve to be pretty aggressive and he's in more trouble when he's not. Although again, some of these things can be circular because sometimes you get into longer rallies on your serve because the serve wasn't that good because you had to hit a second serve and it turned out that the return was really good and there's no way you could have safely hit an aggressive shot on the third ball and you know improved your chance of winning the point so you know it looks like it was a bad tactic because you lose those longer rallies when in fact you would have lost it by turning into a shorter rally as well but you know if he hits a lot of slice returns it's probably going to be hard to be really aggressive on his on the fourth shot of the rally um so some of that may come back to technical and you know what he makes possible with the with his first shot of the rally i you know i i think that in the in the post that you did that broke this down for different players bertini and isner were two of the most glaring examples where they were much better on very short rallies than they were on much longer and for both of them i really wanted to see that broken down by serve and return yeah it, it it's a misleading uh, maybe a slightly misleading stat when it's not broken down by serve and return because it isn't when, when you say a player is really good on one and two shot rallies yes that means they're good on serve but what it really means is that they're better on serve than they allow their opponents to be on serve so you can have someone like Nadal or Djokovic who is very good on one or two shot rallies not because they're they're, they're great servers but because they're better servers than their opponents are facing a returner of the quality of Nadal or Djokovic. So, so yeah, those, those stats that I posted, I think you're referring to the what I wrote on the blog a few days ago based on Murat Safin's comment about American players, that uh, those numbers aren't a great starting point, <laughs> a great jumping off point for this particular discussion. Uh, but, but your previous point is in, an important one, I think, that long rallies aren't they aren't necessarily tactical decision. They're just what flows from not being able to hit a big enough shot. I mean, and for Berrettini, I think that's almost always the case. He is very aggressive. I mean, even on return when the opportunity presents itself. But if Berrettini finds himself in an, a ten-shot rally, it's not because he thought before the rally. You know, I've had enough of these short ones. Let's play a long one. <laughs> He's in a ten-shot rally because he didn't know how to end it earlier, or or maybe he he managed to salvage a couple shots that normally would have would have gone by him or would have turned into forced errors. Uh, so it, it, it's tough to balance that out. In, on the flip side, it seems like a lot of young women are maybe too aggressive on on those early shots. I mean, Jeff, you've mentioned Alexandrova and Kudermetova, who are pretty effective on these short points, but. I, I watched the Brisbane final yesterday between Madison Keys and Karolina Pliskova. Super close match. Uh, but Madison Keys lost a few big points with just horrible unforced errors on gimmies. Like, plus one shots that she, she was standing inside the service line and hit a forehand into the net. I mean, the, some of the, the backhand research I've been doing lately, it showed that Keys was... I forget the number. It was incredibly high, but she was hitting unforced errors on like half of her down the line backhand attempts. I mean, is this something that's gone that's gone too far with going for broke and being overly aggressive? Yeah, and I mean, you're, you're trying to modulate uh, what the player is going to do. You can, you tell them to be aggressive, but of course, what you mean is be aggressive at the right time in the right moments with the right ball, etc. Um, and and I'm not sure that. We don't know if that doesn't sink in, uh, and and that I I have this thought that 
you know, there are there are people who are risk takers and people who aren't risk takers anyway. This is just in life. You know, you have more aggressive lawyers, you have less aggressive lawyers, you have more experimental doctors, you have, you know, more conservative doctors. Jeff, and, how could you set something up like that and not give us a lawyer joke? Uh, <laughs> it, uh, it felt like the setup to a lawyer joke. Yeah, it probably was. So I, uh, a lawyer and a doctor. They have to both walk into a bar. So uh, I, I think there's no chance that if you told... Gilles Simone to be more aggressive that he'd play like Berrettini or vice versa uh, there's just something inherent in their mindset it isn't just training I'm sure some of it is that some of it is their skill set but some of it is just the way they want they perceive themselves to to play tennis you everybody I'm sure you two guys are the same way you have someone that you would like to play tennis like I mean you may love Roger Federer but on the court whether you're trying to mimic that or not is dependent on a number of things but uh, i think they they all have sort of a an idea of what they want to be and breaking them out of that is difficult or if you break them out it, it you may break them out too far so I, I don't think madison keys is a conservative player on the court by nature and somehow has been told to be aggressive and and can't control it i think she's naturally aggressive but i think when someone tells you aggression is where you win you win when you are aggressive then you have to, it, it takes a lot of experience to know that, okay, on this particular one, I've got to dial it back. Uh, and uh, But, you know, you get you get drunk with success, too. I mean, you know, these things tend to be, at least visually, I don't know uh, if anyone's tested this, they tend to be streaky. So, you know, she could get uh, three-second serves and pummel them and then think, well, I'm just going to keep pummeling them. I mean, it worked three times in a row. And then all of a sudden, she's hitting the fence. Um so, I mean, so, so Jeff, if, if you agree that, uh, okay, do you agree that Madison Keys is too aggressive in general? Yeah, well, yeah, for, for what her, yeah, now that we've seen her on, how long has she been on tour, uh, where she's been prominent, five years? Um, like that. Yeah. From what we've seen, I would say yes. I mean, originally I thought, well, maybe she's the appropriate amount of aggressive, but doesn't have the technical uh, shot yet. Uh, to keep those balls in, but so it, it, even if we accept maybe maybe on a scale of one to ten, she's currently a nine and she should be an eight. Even if it's a small adjustment, you make a good point that players have certain tendencies they'll they'll or certain certain natures that are going to be tough to break them out of. You don't want to push them too far in the wrong direction, or else they'll be totally lost on the court. If you want to take a player like Madison Keys from a nine to an eight, what do you tell them or? How how do you practice with them differently? Like, what do you do to get to get a player to sh- to shift a strategy like that and still keep what their nature is as a useful part of their game? Well, easy for me to say, not having to <laughs> actually coach or play the matches. Um, but I kind of like the idea. I don't know if you guys have ever done this with anything. We're, we're just sort of um, randomly doing something different or. You know, whether whether it's with a random number number generator or something, I'm pretty sure Madison Keys isn't going to do that. But it'd be nice to to say to her, look, you know, every once in a while, I want you to just not be aggressive on the on the second serve return. Hit a, a good or what is um, Anacone's phrase is uh, being aggressive to big targets or it's something along those lines. Is that you can be aggressive, but you don't have to try to hit the line every time. Um, or take a little bit off because the the next ball may be a sitter for you uh, or, or, a, or a point that you can be more aggressive on a smarter ball to be aggressive on and uh, just as a just as a training method I mean sure you would love for someone to crush the second serve every single time but if if it's a 50 50 proposition let's just try not doing it sometimes and that doesn't mean don't be aggressive be aggressive on the fourth shot instead of on the second shot uh, that's interesting. I hadn't never thought of it that way to just let let players play around with the idea of being less aggressive because you sometimes hear about coaches telling players to be to play around with the idea of being more aggressive. And one famous example, or maybe not famous, but one example I remember is one year Donald Young worked out with the U.S. Davis Cup team, and I think it was when Courier was the captain, and, and Courier told Donald Young, you know, just just go for it, hit some big shots, and he did that. And apparently, for one practice or one match or something, he, he Donald Young played really great. He felt like he'd opened something new in his game. It was enough of a thing that it was mentioned on on commentary for a couple of years whenever Donald Young played a match. And but but that's a good point that that can go 
in in both directions. So so Carl, you, you want to jump in in here too? What have you got? Well, I, I just heard the comment about you know being aggressive on the fourth shot instead of the second, and it, it brought to mind something that struck me. Uh, tennis abstract Jeff from your tennis abstract post which we talked about briefly which looked at you know win percentage on rallies of one to two shots versus three to four versus five plus and I think we've been kind of implicitly accepting two things here that I'm not sure are true one is that you know there, there's there's some special link of the first four shots to each other that is different than subsequent shots and that that's where you would draw the boundary or that that's a better place to draw the boundary than somewhere else. And and secondly, that, you know, aggressive is aggressive and that, you know, aggression, uh, if you're if you're more aggressive than average at a certain stage than, than you also are elsewhere uh, and that your success at being aggressive is similar. So I'd love to study this more. I think that both those ideas are intuitive, but we'd want to know if they were true to know how to rethink practice and, and where the opportunities lie and, and where to balance aggression and so on. So I looked at the uh, 20 examples you gave in the post of players' win percentages at each of those three rally lengths and looked at the correlations between them and found that there's a negative correlation between how often players win rallies of one to two shots and how often they win rallies of three to four shots or five plus shots. And there's a strong positive correlation between how long they win the three to four shot rallies and the five plus shot rallies, which is a selected sample of a larger sample and may not hold true. But the story I could tell is the three to four shot rallies are actually more like the five plus, whereas the serve and return are very separate skills that you know what you could practice serve over and over again and it won't help you much on any other stage of a rally except the very occasional bounce smash and you could practice return over and over and that's probably going to help more with ground strokes but it's still a very specific kind of ground stroke off a different kind of bounce off a different spot in the court um, whereas what you do from the from that point on is more similar than it is different so I think that would be something to probe as well is like, is this dividing point really between one to two shot rallies and the, and the rest? Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it because that's kind of where I wanted to direct our conversation in the, the time remaining as well. And I would go even further that the way I broke down the data in that post, it, it, there is this clear separation between effectiveness on one or two shot rallies and then effectiveness on three or more. But it, We'd have to study it a different way, but it might just be the serve. I mean, you make a good point, Carl, that a return is qualitatively different from the rest of the rally. It's, it's a different shot, even though we still call them forehands and backhands. But I'm not sure whether are, are they an indiv- are they a unique shot like the serve, or are they just a slightly different version of of ground strokes in terms of of how effective players are at hitting them. So. The, the the way I was originally going to frame this question that you've kind of jumped the gun on is if if you are a coach, if you believe the practice court is broken and you think I need to figure out a way to train my players to really nail the third and fourth shots of a rally. Well, those are usually going to be forehands or backhands. Um, and the people who say the practice court is broken are, often will say that we're spending too much time just practicing forehands and backhands and we're just hitting ground strokes rallying the way that kids do when they're getting prepared to go out and play a bunch of 15 stroke rallies in u14s uh so it is there a fundamental difference i mean the 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 correlations you mentioned carl would suggest that there isn't much that if you're good at three shot rallies you're good at five shot rallies but jeff do you think that that if if you're focused on winning three or four shot rallies instead of letting rallies drag on longer, do you think that means practice is different? Yeah, well, I think it depends on on the the grouping. I, I definitely see the obviously the serve and return is is quite a bit different. I don't I don't think, and again, some of this is just based based on personal experience, but the return is is just not a ground stroke. I mean, it is, but it isn't. It, it, you don't have the same take back. You don't have the same footwork. You don't have the same even sort of mental attitude towards it. What, what I think is interesting is that third shot because is it more linked to the fourth shot or is it more, I mean, everything in tennis is linked, but is it linked more to the fourth shot or to the return? 
um, I could see how it'd be pretty hard to delink it from the return if you have a pretty good returner. Um, to me, that third shot is still part of the serve and return process. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's. I think that, and maybe this is just coming full circle on this, is that maybe when we're talking about practicing, uh, we're just talking about your attitude when you hit the fourth ball or your attitude when you hit the fifth ball in the sense that, uh, you know, the other guy is going to be going for it on the fourth ball. So you should be thinking about going for it on the fifth ball rather than thinking about how am I going to keep this guy in the rally until the 10th shot. Uh, and, and so it's not so much about, to me, about practicing, you know, your ground strokes as it is practicing. When do I have the opportunity to get out of this point uh, in a way that's most advantageous for me? Uh, given the score, the opponent, where the ball is, what my strengths are, et cetera, and maximizing those. And that sort of comes back to maybe to Madison Keys also is that, you know, if you're just redlining on everything, you're not really uh, thinking about efficiency. You're not thinking about which which balls are the best ones for me to try this on. And, uh, and that to me is sort of the, the key. If there is any, you know, one to four shot or whatever you want to call it, practice mentality, is that uh, what are you thinking about after you hit the serve? What do you want to do with a third ball? And what do you want to do with a fifth ball? And are you the kind of player that wants to think about what do I do with the 10th ball? Or are you the kind of person who thinks I'm not thinking beyond the fifth ball? By the fifth ball, I need to have made my move. Yeah, that's something you hear commentators talk about sometimes. They'll, they'll say certain players always know what they're doing with the shot. They're always trying to make something happen. And then there are some players, I, I always pick on Gilles Simone, which is not fair because Gilles Simone is a really brainy, really smart player. Uh, but because he ends up in all these super long rallies, I tend to use him as an example of someone who just slogs it out on court. But, um, but the type of player that commentators love are the ones who are sort of turning, they're not thinking about it as a, as a third or fourth four shot rally they're thinking of i want to finish this point in you know, less than say three more shots and maybe that's the mentality you're talking about that like, maybe you can't finish it now i mean you want madison keys to realize she can't always finish the finish the point with her next shot but maybe she should always be thinking if i'm not finishing with this one i should finish it with the next one i mean is that is, is that a fair idea of what you're talking about jeff yeah, and I think we may have seen that in the Goffin match against uh, Nadal. I mean, uh, Goffin, I wouldn't quite put him in the Simone category, but it, you can see the analogy there. But someone told him, or he decided on his own, to take a different approach in that Nadal match and in ATP Cup, and he seemed to be more aggressive, uh, and which, of course, makes sense, because doing what he normally does is never going to work against Rafa, because Rafa does every single one of those things better. Uh, and he took a different approach. Now, uh, we can say whatever we want about what condition uh, Rafa's game was in during uh, ATP Cup and how that, that may have contributed. But there was a noticeable difference in style, and, and which really just means attitude uh, for Goffin in that match. Uh, and, and so to me, that, that was, and we heard this for years about Andy Murray, right, before he really uh, won the big tournament. Uh, that he just wasn't aggressive enough and that he was much better when he was aggressive. We heard the same thing about Wozniacki throughout most of her career, that if she would just be more aggressive. Uh, and, and so I think it's just a mental, you know, like you said, when, when do I want to end this point? And again, I didn't mean to make it seem like we have a target like the fifth shot of every rally, but we do have a, you know, some sort of concept in our head about how to get out of this thing. Uh, if especially if you're an aggressive uh, but otherwise sort of red line player and the point's going on too long, what's your next shot to set up the shot that will get you out of this mess? And it, if 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 we agree on that, I mean, this is all very provisional, but if, if we agree that we should be thinking more in terms of like three or four shots from wherever we are in the rally rather than three or four shots from the beginning of the rally as the, the ideal strategy, then... Does that mean we we change practice? I mean, Carl, do you think that more more practice drills should be oriented around hitting these shots with purpose rather than just I don't know. This is a loaded question, but rallying for the sake of rallying, should practice be different based on that more conservative way of thinking about this? 
Maybe. I mean, I, I come back always to a point that you drilled into me, Tennis Abstract Jeff, of the symmetry of the sport. So if, if one player is, is hitting with purpose and is, is somehow controlling the rally enough to be able to do that and, and see an, an end point where they, they put away the ball or force an error, the other player is playing defense and trying to stop that player. And that player is trying to make what looks like a one or two shot sequence look like a five or six shot sequence and look, you know, what looks like an 80% win probability in the point be more of a 70 or 60% win probability. And sometimes you're going to be that player, even if you don't want to be, sometimes you're going to be returning and you're going to hit a weak return and you're going to start running. And sometimes you're going to do it early in the match and feel okay, but then it's the 50th time you're doing it late in the deciding set and you want your legs to still be there and to still be able to hit a good shot at the end of the run so i you know i i think if if one player can always decide what they're doing in every point and practice for that that's a very easy match that they probably don't have to practice for yeah so the you're always going to have to be revising. I feel like there's there's a really probably a really good quote from some f- famous military general for this about you, you make plans just so you can tear them up and make new plans, uh, but you still want to have a plan, right? I mean, I, I, your point is a good one, Carl. That just because you decide I'm going to hit a shot that allows me to hit a winner on the next on the next shot. That doesn't mean you get to hit a winner on the next shot, but it does mean that you always want to have that attitude. Um, and sometimes, yeah, you're you're facing the brunt of that. You don't you're not in a position to set yourself up for a winner. You're just defending. And if you're Alex Dimonor, then you could be doing that for thirty shots. And that that's just kind of the, the sort of player you are. That's what you have to look forward to in your career. Uh, is so, so a lot of this comes down to match skills. And whether we're talking about the third shot in a rally or the twelfth shot in a rally, when you've made these revised estimates or plans. I don't know, six times. So you've both said at various stages of this conversation that you really can't get this stuff outside of match play. So I mean, if if we in our, you know, we're not coaches, we're not experts in any of this, we just think a lot about tennis analytics, but is, is the solution here that if the practice court is broken, there should be less time on the practice court and more of that should be at least practice matches or some kind of match simulation. I mean, Jeff, is that where where you'd shift to to solve some of these issues we're talking about? I'm not sure what the practical aspects of that are. I don't know how many, um, uh, you know, worthy opponents there are to, to practice matches with. Um, it, but, I mean, I think certainly if that's an underutilized uh uh, an un- underutilized thing that it would seem smart to me to blend uh, some of that in uh, because you know again it's it, it, we're starting from a place where we don't know exactly what the practices look like I I see you know I don't know I'm thinking of like Stefan Edberg standing with the racket up against his chest sometimes you kind of wonder why these guys these uh, celebrity coaches have or these famous player coaches even have the racket you know they're always clutching it to their chest standing behind uh, Federer or somebody, um, and they're they're saying something. I don't know what they're saying, um, and it's, so uh, since I don't really know what practice is, I don't I don't know whether they're doing the things that they should be doing. But I, I can't see any I can't see any downside of playing matches. Um, I mean, I don't think, for instance, a college basketball coach would assume that the high school player who's a five-star recruit and dominated in high school and comes to the school that after like 10 practices is going to be a truly accomplished college basketball player until they've played a few games and they play a pretty easy schedule and then eventually they get into a conference schedule and things get tougher and et cetera. Uh, So, I mean, it's pretty, I think, accepted that you should be playing more matches i know personally like if you just go out and hit you can seem like a superstar you start playing a match and you're like where did all that stuff i've been doing for the last few weeks when i'm hitting around i've been hitting great now i'm playing a match and i'm terrible um so yeah i i don't know how much they do that but it it seems like a certainly something that should be sprinkled in yeah i mean what what you were just your last point um the way that commentators talk about is is getting into a rhythm or being taken out of a rhythm and when you're practicing yeah it's easy to get into a rhythm you can you can have someone hit you forehand after forehand after forehand and you'll hit some great ones in a row uh, 
but if you're in a in a match, especially in a match against someone aggressive, you might never get to hit two forehands in a row, um, back to back to back. So, I mean, it is part of what we're talking about developing something like rhythm, but within the confines of a match when you don't really get the same shot one time after another after another. I mean, Carl, I know that most of the time you spend on court is spent playing matches. I mean, is, is I know part of that's just because that's what you like to do, but do you think that's that's allowing you to develop more of like a match rhythm that's more useful than a practice rhythm would be? Absolutely. I also have no idea how that applies to pros, but yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think that it it it's just, I mean, and you know, to Hidden Game of Tennis, Jeff's point that I've I've played against the players who in warm-ups intimidated the hell out of me and then clearly just like didn't know how to play a match and um, speaking of correlations like I, I would love to sort of pause at that moment just before the the first point and have each player predict the score and then you know see how we do based on our warm-ups uh, when we haven't played each other before by the way I think the quote from the um, the general that you were thinking of tennis abstract Jeff is is from Mike Tyson Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an adaptation of some general, though, right? What, didn't some general say something like that? There was, there was something else. Yeah, that, but yeah, that, that, that might have been what I was thinking of. I, I, I think there are other versions, but it's with any good quote, there's going to be there's going to be more than one version of the same the same notion. But I like it better um, that it was a Mike Tyson quote, and that you, you were you were relying on Mike Tyson for analytics. Yeah, I mean, if that isn't a good note to end on, I don't think we're ever going to get to one. So, um, yeah, the Tennis Abstract Mike Tyson Analytics podcast. Um, we're well over an hour, so I, I think we could both talk about, or we could all talk about this for um, quite a bit more time, and maybe we will in an upcoming episode. With some... special guest Mike Tyson. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to say, I don't want to be in the same room with him. I just want to make that clear. Well, you don't have to be. I mean, we've... We, have we ever been in the same room, Jeff? We've been in the same place, yeah. but never in an enclosed room. No, we room. haven't. But if I find myself in a room with Mike Tyson, I'm wearing earmuffs. Is he loud, or are you worried? No, he's a biter. Oh, uh, right. I, for, I <laughs> forgot about that. Well, he probably doesn't um, want to be in the room with you, so it's probably mutual. No, no, he doesn't. He, yeah. If there's one thing Mike Tyson hates, it's tennis analytics. <laughs> uh, the one thing. <laughs> Top on the list... So thank you everyone for listening, including to whatever that was for the last minute of our episode. Uh, this has been episode 83 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. I've been joined for two weeks running now by Carl Bialik, who's also the host of the 30 Love Podcast, which has an extensive back catalog you should spend some quality time with. And also joined by Jeff McFarland from HiddenGameOfTennis.com, which has some great new content diving into some of the second screen data that is interesting for us, even if it is not interesting for ATP Cup captains during matches. So thank you both for joining me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, we'll probably be back soon in some permutation or other to talk Australian Open. Qualif- qualification rounds start tomorrow, and the, the, the big show starts in a week or so. So um, enjoy all that. And we'll be with you soon.